<laughs> okay, okay, we're live. Okay, hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Josh Peck. I've talked to him before, but we're going to talk today about a book he published September 15, 2021. The title of that book is The Lost Prophecies of Qumran, 2025 and the Final Age of Man. And right now on Amazon, it has 78 five-star reviews. It's a superbly well-researched, really interesting book. And I'm really glad he wrote it because I learned a lot reading through it. This is not his first book. Our last conversation was about a documentary that he made about sex trafficking. Title of that is Silent Cry, The Darker Side of Trafficking. And you can listen to that on my podcast if you want to look back. That was from October 2020. On Amazon, it has 298 five-star reviews. So that was very well received as well. And it's an excellent documentary. Um, Also, this is not his first book. He's written many books starting back in 2013. Four Degrees of Baptism, also 2013 Spiritual Warfare Against the Satanic Government, and then also in 2013, Sorting Out the Resurrection and Ascensions of Christ, and then 2014 Disclosure, also Quantum Creation, Does the Supernatural Lurk in the Fourth Dimension, 2014, Cherubim Chariots, Exploring the Extra-Dimensional Hypothesis, 2015, and then with Tom Horn, he wrote Abaddon Ascending, The Ancient Conspiracy at the Center of CERN's Most Secretive Mission from 2017. And then in 2020, Afterlife, Near-Death Experiences, Neuroscience, Quantum Physics, and the Increasing Evidence for Life After Death. And he is the host of the Sharpening Report, which can be found on The Daily Renegade. So if you go to your podcast stuff or iTunes, look up The Daily Renegade, and you'll see uh, the Sharpening Report on there. And some other shows as well, so a lot of uh, Christian biblical analysis and things like that. Um, Also, his website is dailyrenegade.com, but again... We're going to talk about this book you just published titled The Lost Power Prophecies of Qumran. So, Josh Peck, welcome back to the show. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to talk to you again. Yeah, likewise, man. It's always great to uh, talk with you. For people who may not have heard our last interview, can you talk about, uh, you have just this, a lot of books in the, in the documentary. Can you talk about some of your work and then what led you to write The Lost Prophecies of Qumran? Yeah, yeah. So I started, uh, I started in full-time ministry in about 2012 and uh yeah like you mentioned i wrote some back back then i was um still trying to get used to writing so i wrote some really short like 50 page books that that was the first few that you mentioned and then i started getting into full more full books and stuff tom horn got a hold of uh some of my work from uh, dr michael lake actually passed it along so shout out to him big thanks to dr lake he's a big reason i'm where i am uh now working with skywatch but um uh, Tom liked it, so he invited uh, me out for an interview when Skywatch was just starting. I was one of the first interviews, and that's when uh, my wife and I got to meet the team. And so um, a little a little while after that, Tom offered us jobs, and we moved from Michigan to Missouri, and we've been uh, I've been at Skywatch ever since. So yeah, the books, everything after everything from Abaddon Ascending and forward is all Defender books. The ones before that were like self-published stuff when I was first starting out. Gotcha. And then what led me to write this book, um, actually a really good friend of mine, Dr. Ken Johnson, he's been doing work with the Dead Sea Scrolls and how they might relate with the Bible. He's been doing that for years. And it's always been kind of an an interest of mine, at least. Um, But after um, the after the silent cry documentary came out, I was trying to figure out what the next thing was going to be. And the way that it's been lately is um, 
the way I interpret it is God just puts an interest in me. And then for some reason, I get really into that one topic until I make a movie or write a book. And then I'm still interested in it, but it's not as intense. It, it goes on to the next thing. So I'm still very much in the Dead Sea Scrolls. That's what led to that book. And um, I'm still researching the Dead Sea Scrolls. I've, I might do something with um, the Millennial Temple next. Uh, we'll have to oh, see, though. <laughs> right. So for people who don't or have not heard of the... Uh, Dead Sea Scrolls or Qumran. Can you kind of give a historical background of its location yeah. and why, how it was found, and how these, how these scrolls came to our present attention or interest? Yeah, absolutely. So the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in a place called Qumran in Israel. They were found in the 40s and 50s, and uh, researchers have been uh, and translators have been uh, looking into these ever since. But uh, basically, these this is the temple library from a Jewish group called the Essenes. They were formed around the same time as the Pharisees and Sadducees that we're familiar with from the Gospels. Uh, but the Essenes believed that the Pharisees and Sadducees had actually become corrupt, so they formed a settlement in Qumran. Um, and when uh, and that's where they they wrote and they kept the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they were still around during the time of Christ. So when we get to um, the Gospels and uh, when we're in that time period, the Essenes are already established and in Qumran, Pharisees and Sadducees are already at the temple and, and Israel is the way that it is in the Gospels. So we have this time period between the close of the Old Testament and the open of the New Testament. Um, and we notice that Israel is very different in these two in the two Testaments. There's actually a period of about 400 years. It's called the 400 silent years. Uh, but it's basically the time between the Old and New Testament and much of that time period is a mystery but we we can we can piece some things together and that's where the dead sea scrolls fit in so the dead sea scrolls came into existence around this time within this 400 silent years so we can use them to tell us what happened um in between those testaments now i don't consider the dead sea scrolls as scripture well i mean they had copies of all the biblical books, um, except one or two of them. But I, uh, as far as the extra biblical stuff, I don't consider that scripture, but it's good for it's good for history. I consider it accurate. Now, before the Dead Sea Scrolls, we only had some scattered parts of the Talmud, the four books of Maccabees and Josephus to tell us what happened between the Testaments. But uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls actually has a lot more to say uh, about that time period, and it all has to do with the Essenes, Pharisees, Sadducees, how everybody came to be, and how the Dead Sea Scrolls came to be in Qumran. So uh, after the time of Christ, um, when the temple was destroyed, prob probably about there uh, when this happened, uh, the, the Essenes mysteriously disappeared, and we can talk about that too if, if you like later, but they, they, mis they mysteriously disappeared and they left behind their whole temple library. So uh, when people talk about like in cave 11, they found this or that scroll. That's what they're talking about. These dead sea scrolls. There were 11 caves, possibly 12. There might be another one. Um, but there were at least 11 caves and they all had these scrolls that were decently preserved for being 2000 years old, but as well preserved as they were, they were still fragmented. There's still a bunch of pieces we don't have. So, um, what we have right now is just really fragmented and incomplete, but it does give uh, enough information about the Essenes, kind of what their establishment was like, uh, and a little bit more in the time just before the time of Christ. So it's really interesting. Right. So, I mean, it was found, and it was found, I think, by a shepherd boy throwing rocks, heard some yeah. 
uh, ceramics or something and went in. And so these, and you, like you said, it's the complete corpus of what we know as our standard Bible yes. with additional files. So there's other things uh, that are in there. And you actually mentioned Dr. Ken Johnson. There's a copper scroll in there as well. Can you talk about that? Yeah, yeah. So this this was one of the weirder things. I didn't write too much about it uh, in, in my book. I, I did a section of the chapter on it because you can't really talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls without at least mentioning the Copper Scroll. But there is a really excellent full book, if people are interested in this, by Shelley Neese and Jim Barfield uh, called The Copper Scroll Project. And there's a ton of information there about it. But basically, when they were finding all these scrolls and most of them are just parchment, you know, normally what you would expect, but there, there was one that was kind of hidden and it's on a little piece of copper and it was actually rolled up too. So we had to use modern technology to actually be able to unroll this thing to, to read it. Um, but it's on copper and it looks like a, a basically a, a list of treasures and like where to find them and things. Um, so the copper scroll project, they are um, trying to get out there and, and, try to find these these artifacts that's listed in this copper scroll but you know due to political situation and stuff they're having a hard time actually being able to excavate anything there but uh so if people want more information on that they should look up the the copper scroll project but i do have an interview in the lost prophecies of qumran with jim barfield of the copper scroll project and um that's included in there uh as well so yeah, people it's can, fascinating so yeah. it's almost like a treasure map yeah of all yeah. of this stuff and you mentioned political these scrolls do have a lot of politi politicization and things like that associated with where they are and their interpretation and meaning, right? Oh, big time. Yeah. Well, I mean, for one thing, it's it's proof, it's further proof that you know the the Jewish people have right to that land because uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls are there. So it, just politically, that alone is an issue. Uh, so it makes it harder for any excavations to be done there. But also, just just within academia or just within Christianity, it seems like a lot of people have trouble knowing what to do with the Dead Sea Scrolls, where they fit. Uh, with probably like our audiences, the biggest question I get asked about this is, um, should these be in the Bible? Because among the Dead Sea Scrolls, you have the Book of Enoch, Jubilees, and, you know, the Book of Enoch is quoted in the Bible in a couple of places. So, you know, I, I get asked that, should Enoch be in the Bible? And I, I, I say no, because I think that's the safe answer. You can read Enoch if you want. Um, but if you're Ethiopian, it's in your Bible. Ethiopians yeah, well, yeah, Ethiopians. Ethiopians have it. Now, if you read the Ethiopian, though, some of the numbers, some of the dates, like the year dates are going to be wrong. Oh, uh, for, there, there's something about, and Jubilees is like that, too. There's something about translating from Hebrew to, uh, you know, maybe Greek or whatever, but from Hebrew to something to Ethiopian uh, Giyas that it, it messes with the numbers and sometimes the numbers don't come out right. So when uh, when you're reading Ethiopian stuff, just keep in mind the numbers might not be exact. But there are, uh, the, the, it is, besides that, it's very, very close. Yeah. Um, so we have enough uh, in the Dead Sea Scrolls of the Book of Enoch to know that the Ethiopian one is a, a very accurate wow. translation except the numbers. So uh, So that's really cool. But but yeah, as far as it, should it be in the Bible, I think it's really good history. And I think it's good uh, to see kind of what the, the culture around the Second Temple period or the intertestamental period, um, how the Essenes thought about things and, you know, 
But as far as should it be in our Bibles, I don't think so. There's so there's so many Dead Sea Scrolls. I have books and books and books. If you included them in the Bible, no one would read the Bible. It'd be way too big. So just right. practically speaking. Um, but, but even on the question of inspiration, I, I do believe these had a purpose for a time. And we don't fully know what that purpose was or, or is. It, it, it definitely led to the spread of Christianity, actually, which is really cool. And that's a that's a cool story with the Essenes. But um, they served a purpose for a time. And I think we can learn from them historically. But I, I don't believe that God intends us to lift these above or to the level of Scripture. At the same time, I don't believe, and I, I want to mention this too, I do not believe there's any indication whatsoever that God wants us to like convert to the Essene religion or anything, because there are some people that it's like, well, the Pharisees and Sadducees had a bunch of problems, but it really seems like the Essenes had it together. So wouldn't that be the one? And yes, they did have it together. They actually predicted uh, what the Messiah would be, who the Messiah would be, what, what the, what the attributes would be that this wasn't what the Pharisees thought some military leader. And then there would be a second Messiah later that this was one Messiah it, two different appearances, his first coming, his second coming, that uh, he would be uh, a God in the flesh, that he would die for sins. They even got the date of when he would be put to, get, put to death. So we're, we're always told nobody in Israel knew at, when Jesus came that he would, he would be how, how he was, but the Essenes knew. So yeah, they did have it together, but we have to remember they were still pre-Jesus. They weren't perfect, and they still had some stuff they needed to get corrected too. Um, they were not nearly anywhere close to what the Pharisees and Sadducees were, but um, they needed to learn some lessons about love and things like that. So they weren't perfect, but they were the closest at that time, and they were the most easily converted. Uh, and, and well, I should say they were the easiest to um, uh, follow follow Jesus when Jesus came. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. And um, there, I mean, for people who don't know, on a map, Qumran is about five miles directly east from Jerusalem. Yeah. So for today's time, not that far, but maybe back then it was a decent journey, half yeah. a day journey or you know quarter day journey. So it's somewhere out there and overlooking the Dead Sea. But you go into depth about kind of the differences between the Pharisees, the Sadducees, Zadok, and maybe you could do a little bit of background. And, it would, and, and the historic, historicity of the Essenes, like we know from Pliny, and you mentioned them about who and Philo. Maybe you could do a little bit of background about these religious groups where Christ was born into. Yeah, so basically you had these three different sects, and they all had different ideas, mainly about, well, about everything. But but at that time, it was the focus was mainly on the Messiah. Um, so the Pharisees had this idea that there would be two Messiahs. There would be the first one that would be some kind of military leader, and then they would that, that military Messiah would give power to the Pharisees or something, help them win a war and give power over back to the Pharisees. Then a second one would come later, or he would die in battle or something. There was something like that. And then, uh, then a second Messiah would come later to fulfill the, the, the rest. Because, you know, when you just read the Old Testament and you look at the Messiah prophecies, you could see why somebody would think these were two different people. Even though it says he, 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 it doesn't say, you know, they, they, they or anything. But you could see how somebody could make the mistake that these are two people. You have the suffering servant and you also have the the righteous, uh, the righteous king. king. So um, so they they thought it was uh, two different messiahs. Now, the Essenes, we can just skip. We can pretty much skip past the Sadducees. They didn't really believe in anything. They kind of they were they kind of had the belief of. 
whatever the government says, there's no afterlife. So whatever the government says, do that and live life as 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 good as you can while you're here, as easy as you can. Uh, go go with the government. Do what the government says. What's the point of fighting back? The Pharisees were not like that. Sadducees were, and it was because they didn't really believe in like angels or, you know, they, they had lost a lot of their beliefs. Now, and then you got the Essenes. Now, the Essenes believed in one Messiah, two different comings, which is interesting because that's a very Christian belief. And uh, in many ways, these really were like the pre-Christians. Um, so actually, there's a, a really good example of this. When John is in jail, John the Baptist, when he's in jail, he asks the apostles to ask Jesus, um, if it is his time to bring in, in bring in the kingdom or if he should look for another. Now, what he's really asking there, it's not that, oh, I'm in jail and now I don't know if Jesus is the Messiah. I'm losing my faith a little bit or I'm questioning it. You know, that, that's kind of how we're, we're taught. That's mm-hmm. not really what's going on. What, what's happening is what John is asking, is there one Messiah or, or two? Are you the one Messiah that f- fulfills all of these, like the Essenes say? And by the way, there's really good reason to believe that John the Baptist was an Essene, and I can get into that a little bit later. Okay. But, um, but uh, is it that, or should we look for another? Is there another that's going to fulfill all the kingdom things? So really what he's asking is, which interpretation is right, the Essenes or the Pharisees? He wasn't questioning his faith. He just he just wanted to make sure he was in the right camp. He had already, he had already, he was already following Jesus and was going to follow Jesus wherever, uh, but he didn't, he, he was just wondering. So when Jesus answered, Jesus gave uh, the apostles a list of things that the Messiah is prophesied to do, and then he says, and go, go tell him that you, you have seen these things. Well, in that list is uh, raising the dead. Yet that prophecy is not found anywhere in the Old Testament. There's nowhere in the Old Testament that says when the Messiah comes, he's supposed to be raising the dead. But we do find that in the Dead Sea Scroll. <laughs> so we have at least one instance where Jesus specifically quoted a Dead Sea Scroll. And when you look at that Dead Sea Scroll, all six of those things are there. Uh, so that's, that's really interesting. What Jesus was saying was, look, you guys got it right. You're the Essenes. You got the Dead Sea Scrolls. You know, you, you got it right. Um, and that Dead Sea Scroll, if people want to look it up, it's called the Messianic Apocalypse. It's, it's really interesting, but it just, it lists things that the Messiah is supposed to do. And, uh, yeah, so, so it's really cool stuff. Do you, do you, uh, do you want to hear about how John the Baptist might be in a scene? Absolutely. All right, so this is really cool. I love talking about this because he's he's one of the weirdest characters in the gospel, and in the gospels. And uh, when we don't know the context of the Essenes, that, that's why we think he's so weird. He was he was actually, well, I mean, the Essenes themselves were weird in their time, but in a good way. So, but um, but there's several reasons to think that John the Baptist actually had a connection with the Essenes. First, the Essenes believed that they were going to fulfill Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, about the voice crying in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord. That mm-hmm. is all over in their documents when they talk about their own sect and like how their community works. Um, community rule and Damascus document are two good ones if people want to look that up. But they they talk about how they're, they left because they felt they were supposed to fulfill this prophecy in Qumran somewhere. Well, and, and that's that was a big part why they why they went out to Qumran in the first place. But we find out John was a fulfillment of that prophecy. The Gospels say that. So there's a connection there. He likely was an Essene if the Essenes thought that they were going to fulfill that and John fulfilled it. 
Another weird one, and I, I like this one because it's something that everybody knows and most people don't really know why. It's just, it, it, it's an odd detail that the Gospels give us. Why, why do they tell us that uh, John had a diet of locusts? <laughs> I right, mean, just, and wore a hair shirt, right? Right, right. It just casually mentions it and then doesn't explain it. But of course, you know, at the time, the, the writer is expecting the reader to understand this stuff because uh, it was, you know, back then, it was 2,000 years ago. We're a little bit more separated uh, in our time and location, but John had a diet of locusts. As I show in the book, uh, locusts were not a common food in Israel at the time, except in Qumran. And actually in, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, we actually find instructions on how to prepare locusts for food. So it was it was actually a delicacy in Qumran. It's in their community rule or Damascus document. I, I read those back to back, so I get them mixed up. But, um, but it's somewhere in there, um, I quoted in the book, so I think that's why that detail is there. And then well, one so of the people at that time, 2000 years ago, just seeing that somebody's eating locusts, could there is a significant amount of that population who would have gone, okay, that guy's in the scene. Yeah. Pro the yeah. 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 It was, it was something that pretty much only they, they, they were kind of known for that. I mean, I'm sure other people, if they wanted to, they could have eaten them, but you know, you know, like, um, a Chinese restaurant's going to be known for Kung Pao chicken or something. You're right. not going to go to an Italian place. It's like, okay, that's Chinese. So I, I think it was like, if somebody sees somebody eating a locust, that's probably in a scene. Right. One, it makes sense. Makes yeah. Sense. One of the, one of the more interesting ones too, John. So John's father worked in the temple, but for some reason we don't see John following that tradition. So uh, the Essenes were actually known for accepting other people's children into their community and being raised uh, by them as their own, kind of like an apprenticeship, but it was, uh, but they were part of the community. So what probably happened is, uh, you know, so his dad is working in the temple, so he, he's not in a scene. And then this angel shows up, he learns about John, you know, he can't talk for a while, so he knows it's real. Well, at that time, he's, he's got to realize, oh my gosh, the Essenes had it right. I'm in the wrong place. And so when John is born, that's why John wasn't raised in the temple uh, with the corruption and everything. That's probably why he was shipped off to Qumran and uh, they raised him in Qumran. So there's also a church father uh, uh, as well that lists John as being the leader of the school of the prophets that apparently was still active at that time in Qumran. And uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls are full of prophecies and stuff, too. So there's a bunch of stuff about that. Wow, it's amazing. It's really yeah. amazing. And, and I then, think you quote yeah. in your book, like, Qumran is the home of the prophets of Israel yeah. and the descendants of a long line of men from the Melchizedek order. So absolutely. Uh, really something else. Yeah. And then the last one, John was uh, baptizing before Jesus comes on the scene. The Essenes were known for frequent ritual bathings. I mean, the, the Pharisees sort of had that too, but with the Essenes, it was like all the time. They would do it before meals. Like it was, uh, it was a big part of their community and it was like an initiation thing. It was like, th this is, this is how to initiate you into the community. Well, when Jesus comes on the scene, you know, they baptized, Jesus gets baptized, but now it's not just being baptized into the Essene community. Now it's like, you're, if you're going to follow Jesus, you'd be baptized in his name. And so it's it's still that initiation thing. It's it's like the initiation into 
uh, Christianity. It, you know, it doesn't provide salvation. Salvation is through Jesus Christ alone, but it's like the initiation. It's like the stamp on it. It's like, you know, now you have dedicated yourself. You want to do this and you're showing everybody else. So they had that same kind of thing uh, in in Qumran well, with the Essenes. They, that, they were really big into oaths. Um, they were really careful about how they did oaths and, and stuff like that. So if they're initiating somebody in, it's like a big deal. So that's, that's why baptism is, was such a big focus of John's ministry. Fascinating. It's really something else. And the Qumran is really not far from the alleged site where Christ was baptized, right? Right. So it's, yeah, so it's like a stone's throw. It's probably a short walk, like a mile or two, I think. Or yeah, maybe if I remember, yeah, if I remember right, it's only a couple miles or it's within walking distance. Yeah. And so, the, and so you see that similarity. It's really, yeah. So, and I think it proves your point in your book. You say that the Dead Sea Scrolls provide additional biblical insight. And I think that's really something that bears out with all of these, this library of files that was found. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that, that's actually, you bring up a good point. That's one of the most important things about this uh, is that the Dead Sea Scrolls, it's lost Jewish history. And right now, most Jewish people, they're either secular or orthodox, which comes from Pharisee teaching, and they, they don't know that there's this other option. You know, they, they've heard of Christians, these crazy Christians over here, but, you know, Jewish Orthodox Jews and secular Jews don't, they don't really care much for Christianity generally, and they're, they're uh, it, it's going to be hard. If you use the word Christian, they're going to have something in their mind on what that is, and it's going to be right. harder to, but they don't know that there's this other option here where there's there's an extremely rich history that's full of honor and obedience to God that is uh, completely Jewish. And unfortunately, most Jewish people today don't have access to that part of their history. So I, I, I would think if we can help Jewish people reclaim their history, show them like, all right, you know, forget about the Christians. Look at the Essenes. Look at the Dead Sea Scrolls. This is actual Jewish history. They were honorable. They didn't corrupt the temple. They actually left because of corruption. This is, this is extremely Jewish stuff. If we can get them interested in that and they read this stuff, you're going to see Messiah. You're going to see Jesus all over the Dead Sea Scrolls. You can, you can let the Dead Sea Scrolls speak for themselves. So if we can help the Jewish people reclaim their history, I think they'll be more likely to consider Jesus because the Essenes immediately knew who Jesus was when he came and they accepted him. That's why in the Gospels you have some people where it takes very little convincing. Basically, they see Jesus and thousands you know, convert. But then other times he gets around some other people, usually the Pharisees and Sadducees, and it's like, no, you, you talk to them for days and days and they're not budging. <laughs> right, right. But that's why the, the ones that were accepting of uh, Jesus immediately, it's because they were already expecting that. They were seeing their own, their prophecies in the Dead Sea Scrolls, their own prophecies getting fulfilled. And they were seeing Jesus do all that. So they, they, expect, they expected that. That's why it was easier for them to convert. But the cool, the really cool thing is, um, I know we don't have an unlimited amount of time, so I want to make sure uh, I, I at least close this thread. But um, the Essenes, the reason they disappeared, you know, academia acts like it's a mystery. No, nobody knows. Maybe it has something to do with the um, destruction of the temple. Maybe they fled. That's not what it was. They became Christians, and they, they took the Great Commission seriously, and they went out and preached the gospel to the world. Like, we come from the Essenes, we Christians. Wow. And it's because of them that we uh, have this amazing uh, Christian tradition that we have now where we still do the same thing. We go out through the world and we try to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to anybody who will who will hear and accept it. So that that's that's how amazing the Essenes are and um, how amazing this history is that we're commonly not taught in church because a lot of this is only just now coming to light. 
Right. I mean, it's all very recent type stuff, and uh, people are still interpreting it. And you go through some of the documents. You talk about the War Scroll, the Melchizedek document, the Aramaic Apocalypse. Can you talk about the importance or relevance of some of these uncovered manuscripts? Yeah. Yeah, so what's really cool about them is the, the mystery that's involved. So like the War Scroll, I wrote, just to take that one as an example, I, I wrote about it extensively in the book, but to be honest, I don't know what to do with it. Um, it talks about, it seems like it talks about the way most people interpret it, or if you watch the History Channel, they'll say the War Scroll is about this end time battle against the you know sons of darkness and the sons of light. And, and it is that, but when you actually read through it, it seems like it's more than one battle. It seems like it's describing more than one thing for more than one purpose. Um, and so in the book, and, and nobody really knows, but in the book, I kind of go through some, some options. You know, maybe, maybe it's multiple prophetic wars because um, angels are fighting in, the, in, in some of these wars too. So, uh, but then it'll give odd time frames. Like it, it's not a seven-year war. Or it's not like what you would expect Armageddon. It's something like... 29 years or like 35 years it gives these weird times so so with that it, it is something end times but the way it's described it goes into great detail about like the trumpets of war that people are blowing and um talks about a, a lot of stuff like that one thing that's really interesting and this is a common thread through uh the prof some of the other prophetic dead sea scrolls is it talks about this group of people called famous men now that's just how it's translated i don't know what the original hebrew is but um it's translated as as famous men and when you if this is an end times battle and it must be because the messiah is there angels are there when you look at all the people groups you have everybody except glorified human beings I think that's what the famous men are. <laughs> and because um, when you when you read the description, it kind of sounds like glorified human beings and, uh, you know, who, who have been who have been restored physically. So um, so with the war scroll, I don't know. Uh, another scroll like that uh, is the temple scroll, which is something that I've been looking into recently and trying to understand. But that's another one where it's clearly really important because they they saved it. The temple scroll is one of the longest scrolls. Uh, that that remains preserved but a lot of it has degraded uh, unfortunately the top third of it is gone there's uh lines missing in between parts so the temple scroll first talks about a lot of sacrifices and kind of normal temple things but then it gets into this description of what sounds like the millennial temple described in ezekiel but when you when you read it it's it's different there's different elements and they, they don't match <laughs> so um i don't know what the purpose of that was what it was supposed to be there i like the mystery of it because nobody really knows um but uh so i'm, I'm currently involved in that and then, and then the so there's some mysterious stuff like that. But even even when we don't know exactly what it is, it's still important. It's still, it, it still points back to the Essenes, their history in the land there, and you know one of the biggest things that you know uh, the Jews actually have the right to, to the land there. So and that that helps prove it. But uh, yeah, very important documents. I'm I'm waiting to see what uh, some of these other ones like the War Scroll and Temple Scroll actually mean. <laughs> Gotcha. And I think one of the interesting aspects of your book and kind of the title of your book is also timing and how you set around kind of the histories, the 10, 700 year histories, because I think it plays into our current age. Can you talk about how that our current age is based or, or can be uh, expanded upon by the SC knowledge? Definitely. So right off the top, I'll say I am not saying that 
the end of the world or the rapture or the return of Christ or anything like that is coming in 2025. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, the, the subtitle is 2025 and the final age of man. And the reason that it's titled like that is the Essenes had this view of human history, all, all of human history from the beginning of the you know creation of Adam up until the uh, new heavens and new earth. They saw that time period as being 7,000 years split up into ages. And it's kind of modeled after just the calendar week. Um, so every day would be a thousand years. Doesn't that sound familiar? <laughs> so, um, and actually, I think that that's why we get stuff like that in the New Testament. I think some of these, some of the New Testament writers were were influenced. I mean, some of them were Essenes themselves, and some of them were influenced later by Essene writings. But that's why we have that. There was this view. So every age is 2,000 years, and they saw four ages. The last age would be a half, like a, a millennial, like Sabbath, a thousand-year Sabbath rest. Um, but they saw all of it as like the calendar week. It's just every day is a thousand years. So the first age uh, was from the creation of Adam to the call of Abraham, and that's called the age of creation. The next one is from the call of Abraham to the destruct or uh, to 75 AD uh, to actually the Council of Yavne, but um, 75 AD, and that's another 2,000 year period that they called that the uh, age of Torah, and our age from 75 AD to 2,075 AD. They they actually called the age of grace, like the Essenes actually knew enough about it to to call it that. Now they didn't have it all put together, otherwise that would violate Ephesians three. There was still a lot about God's plan here that they didn't know, but they knew that there would be this something about grace, something about God's grace is coming. And so they called our age, the age of grace. And if their calendar is correct, their entire calendar has been reconstructed and it's from the original source material. So we don't have any weird mistranslation of numbers or anything like, like with the Ethiopian, but the entire calendar has been uh, the yearly calendar. They also had their own yearly calendar, but that's been reconstructed. Um, if we if we're understanding everything right, and if the Essenes were right, uh, they they believed that the end of the age of grace would come in 2075, and they saw that as basically when the Messiah returns. We would we would say you know maybe the end of the tribulation or something, but um, but that that's how that's how they saw it, and that would initiate the last thousand years. So that according to the Essenes, again, if 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 all of this is right. They would put um, they would put the end of our age at, in 2075. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that we have to wait that long for things to happen, um, because if you think about the age of Torah, when Jesus came on the scene the first time, it was relatively early in what's called the final jubilee. So the final 50 years that would have been from 25 AD to 75 AD. But when you think about it, Jesus came early in that time period, really early. Um, and everything that happened was done, uh, all, all, you know, Pentecost and all of that was done by 32 AD. So that was only seven years after the, the beginning of the final Jubilee of their age. Well, the, the, according to the Essenes, the final Jubilee of our age begins in 2025. And then that, that would be the, the last Jubilee where we should start to see prophetic things start to get fulfilled. If, you know, again, if the Essene interpretation is correct. And I, I personally believe there's a uh, good reason to suspect that it would be correct because all their other prophecies so far have, have turned out to be true. So 
Uh, so that I think we're entering in very exciting times. So if people are thinking like, oh, we got to wait till 2075. Well, maybe not. Maybe not. You know, there's still a lot of other things that need to happen. If people um, for those who believe in the seven year tribulation thing that could come early. And because think think about this. When Jesus comes back, I don't believe he's just going to clap his hands and automatically the world's different. Right. He doesn't seem to operate that way. I think what's going to happen is it's going to take time for the world, whoever's left, um, the, the world to to learn the new rules. How how are things going to work in the millennium? You know, I think that's going to take time. How long does it take for the nations to, uh, you know, beat their swords into plowshares? I don't think all that's going to happen overnight. I don't know how long it's going to be, but I, I could see that taking maybe even a few years. You know, who knows? Um, so all we know is, is the millennium itself is a thousand years. Uh, and in between these ages, there seems to be this transition period of of a jubilee and it seems to happen in the final jubilee of the previous age before the next age to come if that pattern because in the age of creation you have the tower of babel incident right before the end of that age um and then right before the end of the age of torah you got you have everything with jesus and then you have the destruct, destruction of the temple and so what we might have might uh, is in 2025, somewhere in that final jubilee, we might have the rest of the uh, prophecies being being fulfilled the way they're going to be filled. I don't know for sure. And I, like I say in the book, don't run up your credit cards, you know, don't sell your house. Don't, you know. I, I actually say in the book, if, if I really was going to predict anything, the safe bet would be to say 2025 is going to come and go and nothing's going to happen and everything's going to be just as awful as it always was. But, but I mean, do you find any of the Essenes had eschatology that was anything distinctly different than... Uh, the common biblical corpus. Did you no. find any variants? Okay. So no, and that, that's the amazing thing. It, it actually all lines up really well. And in the in, in the very end of the book, and I'll, I'll leave that for people to go and read on their own. I won't get it, get really into it. But um, at the very end of the book, I actually show how the Dead Sea Scrolls are, are perfectly compatible with uh, Bible prophecy. They don't change anything. They add some context. They, they help connect some dots. But everything's the same. The only thing I can't figure out, again, is the that description in the temple scroll of this of this temple that never was built and it, it sounds like by the description that it's the millennial temple but it's totally different however i would not say that that is like a wrong prophecy i just don't think that's the ezekiel prophecy i don't know what it is because we don't have the context we have no idea why that was written or what what the what the message is supposed to be for it um so that that would be the only thing where it's like i don't have enough information to 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 really judge that one the temple scroll uh, but that that is the closest so far that I've ever come up against uh, like a contradiction or something that was just totally different. Um, but again, Temple Scroll might not have anything to do with the Millennial Temple, might ha not have anything to do with Revelation or Ezekiel's vision. It could be something totally different. Uh, so so that that one that one I, I put in that category. But yeah, the re the rest of them, I mean, it goes along with it really really well. It seems like a scene eschatology and Christian eschatology are are pretty much identical. Wow, amazing! Well, that's a great uh, talk, Josh. Thanks for sharing all that information. Yeah. Where's the best place to get the book? skywatchtv.com because uh, if people get it there they'll get some extra materials they'll get Ken Johnson's new book which uh, we we released together Ken actually wrote the foreword to my book and I uh, was honored to write the foreword to his uh, so it was really cool and then, and then it comes with uh, with some other materials as well that people can check out at skywatchtvstore.com 
Um, or if people just want the book, they can get it on Amazon. Wherever they get the book, though, I would ask people to please leave me a review because that, that does help. Uh, but yeah, skywatchtvstore.com is the best place to go. Gotcha. I will put that in the show notes, skywatchtvstore.com. And then for people who want to listen to your podcast, it's The Daily Renegade. And then your podcast is inside the daily renegade right? yes that's right yeah so daily renegade is basically a collection of different shows we have about five or six and i host two of them the sharpening report and jpd weekly one of them's like an interview show the other one's kind of more of a bible study show um i, I kind of took a hiatus to get through the holidays but uh getting ready to start producing some more content again soon so yeah dailyrenegade.com people can check that out and they can check out some of the other hosts we have we have gary wayne uh brian melvin and so people will be able to find something there uh, that they like. DailyRenegade.com. Yeah, I, I heard your interview with Michaela Peterson. That was a really fascinating. Oh, yeah. One, so that was cool. Yeah. And uh, thanks so much for your time, Josh. Again, the title of the book is The Lost Prophecies of Qumran 2025 and the Final Age of Man. Really superbly well-researched. Thanks so much for your time. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. It was great talking to you again. All right. Awesome. God bless. All right. Stay there. Stay there.